Welcome back to the Way, the Truth, and the Life Bible Study. Uh, last time we got together, last in Lesson 2, we looked at how God spoke the world into existence, how creation itself points to a magnificent plan from an all-powerful creator. Sin entered the world when Adam and Eve questioned whether God's word was really true and whether or not there would actually be consequences if they didn't follow his word. Yet in spite of sin, we find that since the beginning of time, God has always desired a relationship with humankind. And so again, as we move through this Bible study, I know you may not get a chance to see me, you may not even know who I am, but we're here to help you. If there are any questions that you have about this or previous lessons, please email us and we will get back to you. Always, we will get back to you to try to do our best to answer whatever questions you may have. Before we start every lesson, let's just say a quick prayer. Lord, God, thank you so much again for your word. You gave it to us. You preserved it for us. And now we can begin to look at principles where we can draw things from your word that guide our lives and our choices. So Jesus, I just pray, Lord, help me to be anointed as I deliver the, the, the principles of your word and do my best to explain them. In your name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So after Adam and Eve sinned, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden and the presence of God the way that they knew it in how they were initially created. After that point, Eve, she gives birth to two sons. And with that birth, the Bible leads us into the story of boys named Cain and Abel. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And Adam knew his wife, and Eve, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect to Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain in his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, that's King James for just frustrated, angry, very mad, and his countenance fell. In this story, we see an introduction to a biblical principle that will forever shape our world. This three-step principle is found back here in Genesis all throughout the Bible, and it's still applicable to modern day, but I'm not ready to reveal it yet, so you can kind of hang on there. Cain and Abel grew it was time to bring an offering to the Lord. And Cain, he's basically like a, like a farmer, and, and Abel is like a shepherd. Cain brings fruit of the ground, and Abel brings the firstlings of his flock. Most likely it was a, a sheep or an, another innocent animal from his flock. In one circumstance, blood was shed, just like what God, remember Adam and Eve sinned, and an animal was killed, and they were clothed with animal skins. So blood was shed. Well, just like that, Abel brings an offering where blood is shed. Cain brings an offering where blood is not shed. It's the fruit of the ground. And so God accepts the bloodshed offering, but he does not accept Cain's offering of fruit. Why is that? You know, growing up, I thought that, well, he probably just brought rotten fruit or, or bad stuff, you know, but that's not the case. There, there really is two parts to this when we look at Scripture. First, God's way always seemed to apply, it, it called for a shedding of blood. Now, not only was that the case with Adam and Eve, but we also find millions of gallons of bloodshed when you move forward past this story. Even the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says, 
almost all things are by the law purged, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, meaning removal, cancellation of sin. Blood was needed. This is why God takes on flesh, and God himself dies on the cross later in the New Testament. We read about it. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28, it says, take heed to yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Ghost has, Holy Ghost has made you overseers. But look at the last line of that verse. It says, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So there was so much emphasis on blood being shed and, and atoning for sin. And we read about this not only in the Old, but in the New Testament. And so Cain doesn't follow the model. He chooses to do things his own way. Abel followed God's model, and his offering was accepted. But there's another part to this, too. Not only did they not follow, not only did Cain not follow the, the, the model of blood being shed in the offering, but also look again at verse 3 of chapter of Genesis 4. It says, in the process of time, Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering. But look at verse 4. It says, Abel brought the firstlings of his flock. This means he brought the firstborn offspring. This was the first part, the very best, the first fruits. If you study the Bible, you'll find the term first fruits used over and over and over again. Cain, when you read this, he appears to just bring an offering. It does not say it was the first fruit. It does not say it was the very best. God does not demand perfection. But he does demand our first, our very best. In these two brothers, we see two totally different kinds of people. One who trusted and obeyed God, and one who, who, who did not. One who obeyed God's plan, one thing, who did things his own way. One way is accepted by God, one way is rejected by God. So, folks, if you're watching this, we, we can't just do things our own way. We must always follow the plan that God lays out for us. Even if that plan makes zero sense at all. If it's God's plan, it's a call to obedience. And so notice something. They both believed in God. Cain is interacting with God. He's conversing with God. He believed in God. Abel believed. The, the belief was not the issue here. After all, they had this open dialogue. They knew who he was. They believed. But, but you know, sometimes people will say things like, well, just believe and you're saved. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you believe that. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but in the Bible, belief always went hand in hand with action. Now, in, in, in English language, you could say, well, you got to believe, and then there's obedience. That was the same concept in, in Bible times. And so I want to introduce to you the foundational theme of not only this Bible study, but of salvation itself. One I pray you will never forget. And that is the theme of grace, faith, and obedience. Read on what happens next. The Lord says to Cain, why art thou wroth? Why is that countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou, and thou shalt rule over him. There are no surprises here. God basically says to Cain, he says, why are you mad? If I could paraphrase this in modern vernacular, why are you mad? If you just do what I told you to do, your offering will be accepted. But by ignoring my commands, sin is going to destroy you. This is what God's trying to get to him. He's saying, why are you mad? Just do what I want you to do. So obviously, 
the expectation was made clear at some point. And so that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. If we, you know, Adam, Eve, hey, what, what happened? Who told you you're naked? What did you do? And so God's grace was reaching out to Cain multiple times in this story. Unfortunately, Cain rejects God's grace, and though he believed in God, he did not obey God. And look at verse 8. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. It came to pass. They were in the field. And Cain rose up, and he killed his brother Abel. And the Lord said to Cain, where's where's Abel, thy brother? And he says, "Uh, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Man, oh, Lord, help me. Thank God that I'm not God. Thank God you're not God. Because Cain looks at me as God and says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Man, I'd want to. What's wrong with you, boy? No, see, he says, he says, am I my brother's keeper? He says, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Again, it appears that we're seeing grace. We're seeing God reach to Cain and going, hey, who told you? Who told you? Uh, did he not know these things? Of course he knew these things. He's giving Cain this opportunity to come to, I did it, Lord, I'm sorry. But once again, Cain rejects God's grace, even though he believed him. He rejects the grace. It says, and now thou art cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thine hand. When thou tillest the ground, this is God speaking to Cain, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall thou be in the earth. Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Listen, I don't know about you, but for the first murderer of the Bible, who is arrogant, first murderer in the world, To me, I go, he has to work for a living and is a fugitive and a vagabond. It seems like he got off easy to me. But that was not the real punishment. Look at the next verse. Verse 14 says, behold, thou hast driven me from the face of the earth. And look at those key words. It says, from thy face shall I be hid. Verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That right there, 14 and 16, that's where you're going to find the real punishment. He lost out on communication with God. He was hid from the face of God, and he was hid from the presence of God. What makes us get to the point where we no longer have access to God and where we're hid from the presence of God? There's really only one thing, and that is when we continually reject the grace of God, even if we believe, but we do not follow him in obedience. Obedience is key. His continuous act of rejecting God's grace and not responding in obedience caused him to lose out. You know, this foundational three-step theme of, of the Bible, it actually appears pretty heavily in the life of another man that we read about just two chapters later. Two chapters is probably 1,500 years in this circumstance. But just two chapters later, sin had gotten so bad, so corrupt in such a quick amount of time, but before God ever passes judgment, we always see grace. God does not dangle us over like a hellfire and say, come on, make a mistake. I'm just waiting to see. No, he he is desires that no one should perish. The, The Bible tells us that. And so before God ever passes judgment, he passes grace. Look at this man. That comes next in Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continued. That's a lot. 
it was great in the earth, only evil, continually. Humanity got messed up real fast. We're only in Genesis 6. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. The Lord said, I'm going to destroy man. I've created from the face of the earth both man, beast, creeping thing, fowls of the air. It repenteth me that I've made them. How sad. But then we see this verse. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because of this grace, God tells Noah exactly what he's going to do. God gives Noah a plan for Noah and his family's salvation. Now, when I say plan of salvation... I'm referring to a specific plan that God offers in grace because he wants to save the people he loves. Here, God's plan for salvation is about to be an ark. But God has a plan for your salvation and my salvation too, and we're going to talk about that in later weeks. But the fact that God's giving a plan is proof itself about how much he loves his people. And so God has a specific plan here for Noah, and he gives Noah the details about what he's going to do. Look at uh, Genesis 6.13, and I'm just reading this, this particular passage out of the New Living because it's easier to understand. It says, God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures. They've filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them out along the earth. And he says, build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar. Now, I'll pause there. Today, in this day and age, we, we kind of think like, well, yeah, you know, Cypress, but Home Depot, they got, they got uh, you know, they got uh, treated wood on sale, and so I'm just going to grab that. It's cheaper. It's not that big of a deal as long as it floats. But no, God has a purpose and a plan. Even if your mind, you say, well, that doesn't make sense, or I think I could do it a different way. It's not a big deal. We see with Adam and Eve, with Cain and Abel, and now we're seeing it with Noah. God demands obedience. And when he gives a plan, it's a specific plan. So here he says... I want you to get cypress wood, waterproof it from, with tar inside and outside. Construct decks and stalls throughout its, its interior. Make the boat 450 foot long. That means like, hey, we ran out of wood. We got 448. That's good enough. Put a nail on it. We'll call it a day. No, God had a plan. And so he says, make it 450 foot long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening. Man, this is a lot of details. Just build the boat and make sure it floats. No, 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 not with God's plan. God's plan's always specific. It's not just ever just believe or make it work. He always has a specific plan. And so he says, put a door on the side, build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. So he, he tells him not just to build a boat, but to build a really big boat. To put things in perspective, look at the dimensions of this ark. God's telling him, he says, 450 foot long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Just to give it some method of comparison, now look at the dimensions built that the, of the Titanic built in 1909 to 1911. That was 882 feet long, 92 feet wide, and 60 feet, wide, uh, 60 feet high from waterline to boat deck. So you look at that and say, man, 450 foot long, 882 foot long, 75 foot wide, 92 foot wide, 45 high, 60 high. I mean, man, that's, and that's like, thousands and thousands of years. That's like 4,000 years before the Titanic. And not to be cynical, but the Noah's Ark didn't, didn't sink. I mean, like that's pretty, that's pretty solid in that day and age to build that large of a boat. So even in the New Testament, the New Testament boasts of Noah's great faith to God's plan when he builds this boat. Look at Hebrews eleven seven. It says, 
by faith, Noah being warned of God of things not as yet, it's not, not seen as yet, I'm sorry, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir, the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. And this truly took an immense level of faith, because as far as we can tell, it never rained before. Genesis 2, just a couple chapters before this story, before, before even Cain and Abel, it says in Genesis 2, every plant of the field before it was in the earth, every herb of the field before it grew, the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. There was not a man to till the ground, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. We don't read anything different since that point. We're only in Genesis 6 now with Noah. And so can you imagine the conversation that takes place right now? I mean, imagine Noah and his wife laying in bed, and he goes, honey, I think I'm going to build a boat. And she says, uh, what's a boat? Well, it's something that'll float on the water. Oh, why do we need that? Well, because it's going to rain. What, what's rain? Well, it's, it's, it's water that falls from the sky. Noah... Our, the mist comes up from the ground. We don't need that. Yeah, but God's getting ready to send so much rain that it's going to fill the whole earth, cover the mountains, and we're going to need a 450-foot-long boat. Can you imagine Noah's wife's face at that moment? But I will say it is just proof that even men talked to their wives about getting a boat back then. But anyway, again, some today will make statements like, all you have to do is just believe and you're saved. But that is not what we find in the Bible. Not what we find. Anyone who ever truly believed always obeyed. What if God's grace reached out to Noah and told Noah, about the upcoming destruction and his plan for Noah's salvation. Noah, I repent of me that I made mankind. I'm done. I'm destroying them. I want you to build a boat. And, 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 and I just want you to know that, that you, know, you just need to do that. And he said, you know what? I believe you, Lord. This makes sense. Thank you for letting me know. But I'm too busy to build a boat today. But I do believe in you. Noah and his family died like the rest of the world. It doesn't matter if you believe God. And he, oh, God, you're, you're, you're right. I know, I, I know that you're going, you're absolutely true. Without obedience, faith is not enough. It's not to belittle grace either or put the salvation solely on our shoulders. Because without God's grace, there is no salvation. Without God's grace, Noah doesn't wake up and go, hey, I'm going to build a boat. He doesn't even know what a, most likely, he doesn't know what a boat is, doesn't know how to build one. But God's grace reaches out. God's grace makes him aware. He says, here's the plan. And so now we see grace, faith, and obedience. What saved Noah? Was it grace, letting him know to build the boat, or was it the fact he built the boat? Trick question, right? It's both. He doesn't build the boat if God's grace doesn't give him the plan. But with the plan, he just says, oh, I believe it doesn't do anything. It doesn't lift a hammer. He's dead. And so there's a theme of salvation here. And, I, and you know, it goes, it reminds me, there was once a man who gained a following. I think several people did it, but 
who gained a following walking on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. I don't know who does this. I don't know why you do this. I don't, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I skydived once, so I guess I like the exhilarating feeling, but, but this here, oh, I don't know. I don't think I could do it, but but this guy, he, he walks on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Spectators would gather around. This guy would do shows for tourists. He would grab a megaphone. He'd get the crowd hype. Who's here? Who thinks I can do it? And one of the tourists would scream, who thinks I can walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope? Do it, man. You can do it. But then one time he's sitting there and he's looking, he's saying, who thinks I can do it? And he's shouting in the megaphone and, and this loud mouth guy in the front's going, go, go for it. Who thinks I can push a wheelbarrow across on the tightrope? Absolutely, man, go for it. And he looks at the loud mouth in the front row and he goes, all right, how about you right there? You, yeah, yeah, come on, you get in the wheelbarrow. Uh, 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 I'm actually busy now. No. The guy who's cheering all of a sudden became pretty hesitant. Why do I tell that story? Because sometimes we can live our lives like that. We can scream and cheer for God that we believe in him. But when it comes time to get in the wheelbarrow, so to speak, we tend to hesitate. He wants me to do what? To build a boat when it's never rained before? He wants me to do what? He wants, what's his plan for my salvation? Because it doesn't always make sense. But if God calls for it, it's obedience. Biblically, faith and action always go together. Why? Because more than just belief is required to be saved. Hebrews 5.9 says, being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto who? Those who not believe in him, who obey him. Look at the account that James gives because he addressed this way of thinking. James 2, 14, it says, What doth it profit, my brethren? Though man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? And he expounds on this. He says, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart, be ye warmed and filled. I mean, somebody knocks on your door. And they're naked saying, I need food. Well, first of all, you'd be like, why are you naked? That's awkward. What's going on? But then you'd say, well, hey. And they say, oh, I'm hungry. I'm starving. And you say, well, you know what? Blessings to you and yours. I wish you the very best. And slam the door in their face. James is going, what in the world good did that just do? And he says in verse 17, even so, meaning just like that, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Faith is a good thing, and nobody's, nobody's saying it's not valuable, but all you have to do is just believe in you're saved is not biblical. Faith, grace is a starting point. Faith is our response. God's grace reaches out. We, have, we as humans have either positive or negative mental assent, either yes, I believe, or no, I don't believe. But even when I say yes, I believe, there's still another step, and that's now what am I going to do with that belief system? And so faith doesn't have life until it's combined with doing something about it. That's why James goes on in verse 18. He says, yea, a man can say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without my works. I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Thou believest there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. For those of you that might say, 
All you have to do is just believe in God. Just believe in him and you're saved. The devils believe that. The devils believe in God. The devil, we have record in scripture of the devil interacting and conversing with God. So if all you have to do is just believe and you're saved, then technically the devil will be in heaven with us one day. But of course we chuckle. That doesn't make any sense. No, because it takes more than just belief. The devil believes, but he doesn't obey God's commands and principles, so he's not going to heaven. That's preposterous. And that's why James ends by saying in 2.24, you see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. He doesn't say faith is worthless. He just says it's not by itself. Verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Cain was punished, hear me, because he believed, but he did not obey. Noah was saved because he believed and he obeyed by following God's plan. The title of this lesson is The Foundational Theme of Salvation. And because without these steps, We don't see salvation in Scripture, not in Old, not in New Testament, and not today. And I want to be honest, I hesitated to say the foundational theme of salvation because I know some of you might say, well, no, the cross is the foundational theme of salvation. And I agree with you, but that's why the cross is part of grace. The the cross is the foundational. You're you're right. Without the cross, where would we be? The cross falls under grace, and it has the power to save. But why is that? Well, because like Cain, grace, grace was extended. Maybe there was an element of faith, but the, you're going to see later in Scripture, the Bible says, for God so loved the world who, that, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. We should not perish because of the cross. But then other parts talk about straight is the gate and narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. So what? why is that? Because even though Jesus Christ paid that price on the cross, grace was extended. No one should, everyone should be saved. But too often we stop short of faith and or obedience. God's grace is extended. Here's my plan. Yes, I believe. No, I don't believe. But even if you believe, what are you going to do with that belief? And so people must have laughed. They must have made fun of Noah until the rain started. I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but imagine laughing at this crazy old guy that was building this boat from anywhere from 80 to 120 years. This massive long boat, and he's talking about rain and floods, and they're going, okay, Noah, woo, you're crazy. And all of a sudden, Noah gets on the boat, his family gets on the boat, animals get on the boat, the door closes, and what was that? The drops to a torrential downpour to all of a sudden water starts to gather at your ankles and moves up your calves to where you're grabbing your family and trying to get to higher ground. Imagine the terror. All because grace was extended but there was no obedience or no faith. 
And so God destroys all life on earth. We read this sad part in, in Genesis 7, 21. It says, all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and cattle, of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things, the fowl of heaven. They were destroyed from the earth, and Noah remained, only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. This is only Genesis 7. What a short time that wickedness spread that fast. Why did it spread? Look at Adam and Eve. Look at Cain and Abel. Look at this story of Noah. You see a theme that will follow us all the way to your modern day where you live right now. God's grace is extended. Here's my plan. Here's what's going to happen if you follow it. Here's what's happening if you don't. Will you choose to believe it? And if so, will you obey the plans, the principles, the guidelines that I've laid out for you? It's a theme we find all through Scripture. And you're going to find it as we move on in this Bible study too. After the flood, God calls Noah and his family out of the ark and he commands them to multiply and replenish the earth. And that's exactly what begins to happen.